0: A quick content warning before we start this episode, Gabby is a survivor of child sex trafficking, which means there are discussions of rape, incest, and pedophilia in this episode. Listener discretion is heavily advised. Thanks, guys.
1: Hey, all you candy sluts and bubble butts. Welcome back to another episode of Candy Girl. I'm one of your hosts, Emily. And I'm Shelby. And today we are here with Gabrielle
0: Monroe. Gabrielle, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Hi everyone, I'm Gabrielle Monroe, she, her. I work with sex worker rights in um, legislation in Pennsylvania, as well as sex trafficking victims rights in legislation in Pennsylvania. I'm also a full service sex worker.
0: So a lot of the people that we talk to who aren't in favor of sex work are like oh because it contributes to sex trafficking and they kind of equate sex work with sex trafficking so i definitely want to get into your take on all of that but first would you tell us a little bit about how you became a sex worker
2: uh sure i am a childhood sex trafficking survivor the first time I was abused. I was abused ages 9 and 10. Uh, My dad was my trafficker. My stepmom murdered my dad and she saved my life. I was on my own at 15. So at 15, I had a little bit more it's really not consent, but a little more knowledge and a little more say in what I was doing. But being a houseless youth without access to resources, I was, again, sex trafficked in multiple situations. When I was 17, I made a plan. And on my 18th birthday, I walked into a strip club, and I tried out. And the next day, I started. And less than a month later, I had an efficiency apartment, and I had a more reliable vehicle, and I just went from there. I've been in multiple different areas of sex work, but I have been a sex worker since my 18th birthday, and I just celebrated my 40th birthday last month. I, I guess the month before that now.
0: I want to know what you like about sex work? Because you're still a sex worker and you've been a sex worker since you were 18. So what keeps you in the business?
2: Oh, I absolutely love every aspect of sex work that I have been involved in. Whenever I was a stripper, I enjoyed dancing. I'm not sure if I was ever any good at it, but I am also autistic. So sometimes I, well, most times I see things very like black and white. So very early on in my stripping career, somebody told me that I was supposed to smile and enjoy myself, even if I wasn't. So after so long of faking, smiling and enjoying myself, I learned to love it. I like interacting with people on an intimate level as well as a mental level. And that is most easily done well when you're naked, to be honest.
0: We talk a lot on the show about how sex work can be very healing for a lot of people, especially healing trauma. Is that something that you found throughout your career?
2: Uh, Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think like at this point, I need to say that anytime I speak publicly, it comes with multiple trauma warnings. So when I was 23, I had decided I wanted to take my kids to Disney World. And I was a stripper, a full time stripper, and um, an occasional full service sex worker at the time. I was approaching my mid 20s many years dancing and my body needed a break. Uh, Dancing is very physically demanding. Uh, Mainly, my knees just weren't having it anymore. So I was merging more into full-service sex work, and I had somebody pull a gun on me. So I decided that I needed to learn more about the business, and I went out to the Bunny Ranch. There, I learned multiple things. Uh, the first thing was, I mean, I had to go through like all of the, the licensing and things like that. And at this time, I didn't have any record other than speeding tickets. I probably had multiple of those, but they didn't count against me. I passed my licensing. And while I was waiting for all of the paperwork to get in order, they gave me this book that showed me all of the sexually transmitted diseases and it had pictures of them and descriptions and how to basically tell what they looked like on um, multiple genitalia. It, it was pretty educational. It was the most education that I had up to that point on sexually transmitted diseases, and nobody talked to me about it. They just handed me this book. So then I. I was young. I always looked much younger than I actually was. I've never been one to really wear makeup. And whenever I was a stripper, I did very well with the whole schoolgirl look with the pigtails and things like that. And I took that look to the brothel with me. I didn't understand at the time why some guys really liked that look until that first trip at the bunny ranch. During the negotiations, uh, I'm not sure how familiar everybody is with how things work at the brothels, but a customer enters usually through a gated door, like they have to hit a doorbell and be let in. They do a lineup of the folks who are available, and then the customer picks from the lineup, or they can go to the bar and have a drink and just relax and get comfortable. So this gentleman picked me from the lineup and I had my little pigtails and cute little schoolgirl outfit on. And he told me like during our negotiation, he paid my price, like the first asking price, which you always have to go a little high in brothels because everybody wants to negotiate for some reason. But he said, yes, he would pay my price as long as I kept my pigtails in the entire time. I'm like, yeah, no problem. Like, I can definitely do that. Like, give me that money. I don't remember exactly, but I want to say I said something like a thousand dollars for an hour or something, and I was new, and it was like the biggest client that I had up to this point. And we we go up to the window, he pays, they give us the setup, which is like a sheet and a washcloth. The sheet goes over the bed, so that way um, things stay as clean as possible, which I'm very comfortable with. I'm a little, I I like things to be clean. Um, I take multiple showers whenever I worked at the brothel, like after every person I would see. But we get back to the room and we start doing our thing. And then I realized that the things he was saying to me reminded me of people that raped me when I was nine. During our session together, he told me that I was supposed to be 12. And then he started calling me a name that I I don't even remember it. But I'm pretty sure that this guy either had possibly raped a child or was really enacting some sort of hardcore rape fantasy. And, and I, I did my job. I did my session. I did not want things to turn violent or confrontational. And he left. And that was the first time I took a shower where I just took a shower until it was cold. They were yelling at me over to the speaker to see if I was okay. And I just like sat on the floor of the tub. And then I went up to the office and I quit. And one of the the other um, brothel ladies that I looked up to, she was on the couch by the office, and she basically apologized for imposing herself in my conversation that was private. But she explained to me, she said, do you understand that if that guy does have a 12-year-old at home, uh, you probably saved her from being raped tonight. So that pretty much at the age of 23 sent me on a very long path of how to heal from my childhood abuse and a lot of that came through various levels of sex work and i'm not saying that i'm anywhere near near healed i said that i'm i'm a special kind of broken i'm never going to be okay and and that's okay uh, but i have found a lot of healing through through sex work and through sex in general and a lot through BDSM, both as BDSM as sex work and BDSM on a personal level. I hope that answered your question.
0: Yeah, definitely. Do you have, because for some people, situations like yours as a survivor of sex trafficking can be, when you are in situations that um, suggest rape, can be extremely triggering Do you have a process when you're with a client and something like that were to come up? Or is there a boundary that you set before the session starts? Like, hey, I won't do X, Y, and Z.
2: Okay. Uh, So to sum all that back up, uh, the therapist suggested that I read the book Boundaries. And whenever I applied what I took from that book to my career, I did experience much less abuse. Uh, now this is pre-FOSTA-SESTA that I'm talking right now. Uh, post Foster sesta is everything's out the window and it's a whole new ball game. But whenever I was younger, it, it was very difficult for me to establish boundaries. A lot of times people would try to overstep my boundaries or manipulate my boundaries a big threat whenever the internet became bigger for sex workers. I signed up for this online space, and they had reviews. And this was all new to me. Like, before this, I put ads in the Pittsburgh City paper. Um, Every Monday, I would run down and hand Andrea my money pay for my ads and online just kind of blew my mind to be honest uh one of the first few people that i saw on this online platform tried to haggle my rates he was not happy with my my high rates that i was charging and he had threatened to write a bad review on me and i was like go ahead I don't care, because at the time, I was still putting ads in the city paper. So I was working on both platforms. Well, I was probably 26-ish, 27-ish, somewhere around that age. And I wasn't very confident in myself. Um, If I gained five extra pounds, I, like, beat myself up over it. I really... Had a lot of uh, self-esteem issues at that age. Um, And this guy did write a review on me. Um, He said that my photos must have been 10 years old, which my photos were old, but they were only about three-ish years old. So they weren't 10 years old. And um, he said about 50 pounds ago and said that I was much larger than I actually was. Yeah, so I just really, that type of atmosphere shaped many years. The review culture shaped many years of learning how to set boundaries. I left that site for a little while after that happened. Um, I did eventually return. But when everything moved online, most online spaces were run by clients, non-sex workers, uh, people who maybe dated sex workers or frequented sex workers, but most of the platforms were made to hide abuse on the back end. So it became navigating the back end abuse that people didn't see, and we only talked about amongst fellow sex workers to keep each other safe and the public appearance of being this perfect provider that these guys wanted uh, while they drove down our prices. Whenever I worked in the city paper, I was making minimum $500 an hour uh, because that was a negotiable thing. And I was Fairly good at negotiating. Uh, But whenever things moved online, the prices were drawn down to $200, $250 an hour. And the threats became amongst the more popular people in the review culture that if you don't do A, B, C, or X, Y, and Z, I'm going to write a bad review or talk poorly about you in the guys' room. I've seen some pretty nasty lies spread by guys who were not happy, they were not getting the price they wanted. It just, for them, it is a hobby. And for us, it is our career. I mean, I've seen people's careers ended because of false STI claims and things like that. So boundary setting was something that I had to, I had to watch what everybody did I had to try to analyze on each side of where abuse claims were happening and basically set boundaries I on a public podcast I'm not going to give you the the tricks that I have used but there's ways that you can kindly turn somebody down without even hinting that you know of their past abuses against your coworkers so a lot of that is now taken away, and we don't have that back-end communication for safety. So navigating boundaries post-FOSTA-SESTA is an entire new setting, and I'll be real honest, I'm not even sure how to really navigate it. Screen, a lot.
0: Yeah, establishing boundaries is not only scary, but its it's hard. Is that something that you had to overcome as you continued through your career, or have you always been the kind of person who is pretty good at setting boundaries?
2: Uh, No, I think that it came with a lot of experience. One time, I, against my better judgment, pushed my own boundaries that I set and took a late at night appointment with somebody who was obviously intoxicated on the phone. I ended up with a gun pushed against my forehead that night because I relaxed my own boundaries because the holidays were coming up and I had kids at home that I wanted to get things for. So yeah, whenever I was younger, I was a lot, there was a lot of trial and error. I wish there was a handbook because I could have read it and avoided a lot a lot of the abuse that I experienced early on as a full service sex worker, I believe.
0: Yeah. So there has been a lot that you've been through and particularly in your career as a sex worker. Why do you keep doing it?
2: Oh, because I love it. Before FOSTA-SESTA, the online atmosphere became a place that was mostly safe. Still, the criminalization will always keep sex workers in areas where they are not safe, no matter how safe we might appear. But it was much safer than my previous working in the city paper. When online spaces developed, we started to communicate and interact as a community. We started to have functions and have fundraisers when community members needed things. Before FOSTA-SESTA was signed, I recall having several community events where both sex workers and clients would attend. And it was like a networking event, much like businesses would do, where you just walk around and you get to know people. You talk to them and you see if you would be a good fit to work together in the future. Many professional businesses have similar practices and the full service sex worker industry was moving towards more traditional business practices I love it I love my community I love being a sex worker I love connecting with people one of the the most memorable things that stick out in my head whenever people ask why am I a sex worker I saw a client one day, it was last minute request, and I very rarely take last minute requests, Uh, but for some reason that day, I, again, pushed my own boundary, and I took the last minute request. This gentleman actually ended up seeing me several times over the next few months, and then the last time he came and saw me, he he told me it was going to be the last time he came and saw me. And he told me that the first time he came and saw me, that he had just buried his wife and his choice was to kill himself or come see me. And he came and saw me until he wanted to live again. There is so much beauty and healing and art and sometimes just fun and kink and orgasms. I mean, my job is amazing. I have had other brief careers, and I always return to sex work because I love it.
0: If you're comfortable talking about it, I would love to know how you think your autism influences your work.
2: Oh, wow. You would have to ask me a hard question, huh? Uh, Okay, well, that, um, to be honest, I'm not real sure. I was diagnosed Um, about two weeks after FOSTA-SESTA was signed. And um, alongside my activisming, I have also been learning about my autism. I'm starting to connect um, in different occasions where things felt uncomfortable as to why they may have been uncomfortable um, and how I can communicate that in the future. Uh, but to be honest, I'm I'm really not sure. That's something maybe you could ask again in a year and I could have a better answer.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about your activism?
2: Well, I'll start off with the two big things that have happened recently. Uh, the Department of Human Services put out uh, an RFP, which is a request for proposals uh, for childhood sex trafficking, housing and services in Pittsburgh. Uh, whenever I read this RFP, my heart sank for multiple reasons, one of which they were using the dehumanizing term CSEC, which stands for commercial sexual exploitation of children. The request for proposal had a $500,000 cap, which is not enough money. I mean, that that is not enough money for what they were requiring uh, by far. So... A group of community organizers got together and we had a meeting with the Department of Human Services. And we explained to them why the term CSEC is dehumanizing and how children cannot be prostitutes, let alone commercially exploited, because they're children and they're being raped and sex trafficked. And by minimizing child sex trafficking survivors down to a term, called CSEC that allows them just to assign us another number and move along to get the next grant to gatekeep from actual sex trafficking victims and survivors. So the Department of Human Services did change that. And they also completely removed the financial cap from the request for proposal. The thought process behind that is many times These services come with such a low number that they have to find creative ways to get folks the services and run the programs and pay people. I mean, because this stuff has staff and there are bills and people have to eat and there's housing, there's legal, there's a lot of cost in all of this. And $500,000 would only enable whomever was awarded the money. It would leave them struggling to find resources to provide for the people that they're helping. And in this case, it is child sex trafficking survivors. The usual way things like that happen is organizations will then encourage the uh, survivor to apply for governmental assistance and like medical insurance. uh, So they could receive funds for like therapy and things like that. So that way they could afford to fund the program. So $500,000 to house a 12 bed child sex trafficking victim shelter is nowhere near enough. So they're already setting people up to exploit the survivors to even survive themselves. So they did remove the cap from that. Uh, We also did mention other things such as the request for proposal suggested to house nine-year-old survivors with 21-year-old survivors. Uh, The only way that should ever happen is if the nine-year-old survivor and the 21-year-old survivor were A, either blood-related and not abusive of each other in any way, or B, abused together and not abusive of each other. Other than that, you should never house a nine-year-old with a 21-year-old. That's just kind of common sense, I would think. So that kind of got blown off with well, we will see how people address that in their proposals. Uh, it was suggested that myself be put on the committee to um, analyze and pick the winning proposal for this, but the Department of Human Services has not gotten back to any of us on that request. But, you know, I think that now they know that they're There is an entire community here in Pittsburgh that is done with people uh, abusing children. Uh, We had a a long conversation with um, somebody from Children and Youth Services that resulted in a future conversation to be had. And I feel that people are starting to listen on how children need to be protected like I don't care about the politics, I don't care about the money, I care about kids and the abuse ending and providing them with safe spaces so they could end their abuse and get food and shelter and whatever they need, right? So on the other side of my activisming is the, the sex worker rights side of things, which goes to a subject we briefly touched earlier about conflation. So Pennsylvania State Representative Summer Lee has put up a memorandum asking for co-sponsors to uh, sponsor the removal of prostitution and related crimes from the Pennsylvania Crimes Code, that is decriminalization of prostitution in Pennsylvania. We are really going to, uh, we've been pushing hard for over a year There has been a legislative policy team working way too many hours for no money, but representative Lee is going to put it up. And we are currently having meetings with both Pennsylvania senators and Pennsylvania representatives. And I am pleasantly surprised with the response I am getting in even if a representative or a senator is not on board, they are asking the, the correct questions that need to be asked to end the conflation. I have had several lawmakers say things similar to, you know, prostitution is not sex trafficking. And I'm like, yes, exactly. Can prostitution be at the same time as sex trafficking? Yes, they can occur at the same time, but they, they're not one in the same. I was not a nine-year-old prostitute. I was not a 15-year-old prostitute. But whenever I was arrested, whenever I was 24, uh, I was not a sex trafficking victim. Uh, they, the police tried to, like, ask me, who do you work for? Like, who's your pimp? Things like that. Um, But I was not a victim. Like I was 24 years old trying to make money the best way I can that worked with my mental health. And at the time I didn't even know I was autistic. I just knew that I had PTSD and I was really abused as a kid. So yeah, I think, does that sum up your question about, um, oh yeah, the end conflation, like I was not a nine-year-old prostitute. So We need to end conflation and realize that that sex work is work. And the term whore is not a bad term, uh, but it is a job. It is a a career. And I think that whatever happens legislatively in Pennsylvania, a lot of good conversations are being had and a lot of confusion and mis- education is being clarified. And a lot of lawmakers within themselves are ending the conflation and starting to look at legislation from a different viewpoint than they were previously. And I could go over um, national if if there's still a little time.
1: Um, yes, absolutely.
2: Okay, so national is a little more tricky because it is very difficult to get the people I want to talk to on the phone on the phone. So Representative Ro Khanna and Senator Elizabeth Warren. Is that right? She ran for president? Warren. Yeah,
1: yeah that that's her.
2: Yes. So they both put up a bill for this Safe Sex Worker Study Bullshit Act, right? So... Here, let me just simplify what it is. They're going to study the abuse of full-service sex workers, aka prostitutes, before they end the abuse for full-service sex workers. So they're going to keep us in our abuse while they study us like lab rats. They will not, uh, neither Senator Warren or Representative Ro Khanna, Khanna, I believe if I'm mispronouncing that, please excuse me, that is not intentional. Neither one will return my phone calls, my requests for a meeting, my email, any form of contact that I have attempted to contact them. They will not chat with me at all. There's two things that could very easily make their bill an all-around package to, yes, they want to study the effects of the violence of fosta Cesta. Well, let me tell you, it has gone up. I have been, okay, that was activisming, so we'll leave that out. I have been assaulted twice post fosta Cesta. That was in less than a year period uh, before I realized that I was unable to safely work and do my activisming in the same areas. So yes, FOSTA says that has caused violence to go up. I know multiple sex workers who are no longer with us. So they wanna study that, okay, fine. They want their little trauma porn bill. Um, why aren't they putting an end conflation piece in that bill? So ending conflation would then allow sex workers to identify as not being a sex trafficking victim and not getting arrested and tried to be forced to testify against some imaginary trafficker that doesn't even exist. It also will allow sex trafficking victims the right to not be charged as prostitute or related charges, right? Uh, There was a study done that said 90.8% of victims experience our criminal justice system as a part of their saving process. So a national end conflation bill would not allow any sex trafficking victims to be charged for prostitution or related charges. And it also would not allow any sex workers to be charged with trafficking of themselves or their co-workers if everything is consensual. So end conflation could be put in there and also an amnesty for sex workers could be put into that legislation to nationally allow both sex workers and sex trafficking victims because, as I just mentioned, most victims experience arrest as their saving process. So we cannot walk in to a police station and report violent crimes against us without the threat of being arrested for prostitution or seminal, similar charges. So an amnesty, a national amnesty put into the legislation, this Safe Sex Worker Act, whatever it is called, adding amnesty on the national level would end a lot of abuse against full service sex workers because then we could develop systems where we could perhaps get an advocate or more than likely a group of advocates to go into the police station and report abusers and not experience arrest ourselves while abusers go free. Did I explain all of that clearly?
1: Very much so. Okay. The work that you're doing is incredible. Thank you. It infuriates me that some policies aren't just common sense, but. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with public speaking?
2: Oh, I um, I actually had to do that for a career that I had while I was only a part-time sex worker. I did have a little business in Florida for a while, and I had to do a lot of public speaking. And I'm not very good at public speaking, uh, unless if I rehearse it. So I have taken a lot of classes and any training that I could get on public speaking to try to learn how to communicate. I don't want to use the word better, because that's not correct. See, okay, a little side note. Oftentimes, folks on the spectrum communicate with each other perfectly. We have no difficulty understanding each other. Um, It is communicating with folks who are not on the spectrum that I often miss. Um, So, I had to learn how to public speak to do my business in Florida, and I just practice a lot. And I'm not very good at it, I don't think. But I try. I always beat myself up because I say um like a 100 times. But that's all right. I don't want to be a public speaker. I want to be a sex worker. But unfortunately, my career is so damn criminalized that something has to be done. So I would prefer to go back to being like a one on one face to face speaker in my job.
1: Well, you've been doing an incredible job this interview. And like, seriously, it's a very eloquent speaker.
2: Thank you.
0: So something we hear a lot as hosts of this podcast is how can you have a sex work podcast? You're clearly promoting trafficking. And it's pretty easy to explain the difference between sex work and trafficking because it's consent basically. And I mean, obviously, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. But what would you say to somebody who said something like that to you?
2: It's a very complicated conversation. There are sex workers who do not want to be sex workers they're sex workers because of circumstance, uh, whatever that may be. These sex workers are denied resources to get job training and other necessities to change their career. Then there's sex workers like me. I am a consenting adult. I want to be a full-service sex worker. I want them to decriminalize full-service sex work. So our community can start to communicate safely and develop all of the things that every other career has, such as, like, mentorship. Like, I can get in trouble for trafficking another sex worker if I tell them how to stay safe being a full-service sex worker. I could technically, under Pennsylvania law, get thrown in jail for that. So there's a lot of gray area in between that 100% consensual full-service sex worker and folks who are being trafficked. I think that when we get decriminalization, that will get rid of a lot of that gray area because it will give both sex workers and sex trafficking victims the protection to report their abusers. It will give us easier access to ending stigma and being attached to resources we need. And it will give us the protections under the law that everybody else has that sex worker, that full service sex workers has have been denied for so many years. So it's a lot of the gray is caused By criminalizing sex workers, because if we could report our abusers, then our abusers would know that if they try to rape us or if they actually do rape us, that we could walk into the police station and have them arrested and tried for rape. So a lot of the gray area will go away whenever we have that very important right that we have been denied our entire life. Over and over again, sex workers are not even like more so than client abuse, but abuse in their personal lives. Uh, For example, once upon a time, and I'm I'm not going to get too deep into the story, but I was kidnapped, and whenever I showed up to testify, the guy who kidnapped me um had shared with them that i was a stripper and they decided that i was not a relevant witness to testify and they dropped the kidnapping charges because i was a stripper i said they had him on multiple cameras and they had everything they needed to prosecute him including my testimony and they dropped the charges because i had no rights cuz i was a sex worker so Whenever we give folks rights back, then that won't end all abusers. Some abusers will just look for different areas to abuse. But I do think that it will end some of the abuse from starting in the first place. It will make people think twice wherever that process is that that leads people up to being violent predators. But I do believe that it will also give victims and sex workers the feeling of safety that we, that somebody gives a shit if um somebody kills us or rapes us or whatever. Uh, for example, I just read an article here locally in Western Pennsylvania where a Two men paid for somebody's lawyer to fight prostitution charges, and um, she refused to have sex with them, and they beat her for two hours until she consented to sex, and they dropped the sexual assault charges probably because she was a prostitute. Like, I'm sorry, beating somebody until they say, okay, I'll have sex with you, that is still rape. They did pursue other physical charges on this person, but the article very graphically described a scene that there's no way that they can't nail these guys for rape, and they dropped all sexual assault charges. So sex workers and sex trafficking victims need the right to report, and then that will help end the conflation. And... Maybe end some abuse, but ending the abuse is a lot more complicated. (laughs) I probably don't have most of those answers.
0: Well, we really appreciate you being so vulnerable with us and sharing your work and your activism and your life. You have genuinely had such an extraordinary life. And- I kind of want to end this episode on a little bit more of a positive note. Would you want to talk a little bit about the sex work community and how they've been there to support you?
2: Everything I'm doing, I'm doing for my community because they've been there my entire life. I have been a full service sex worker off and on for over 20 years and they're my family. So we... Uh, We fight like family, we love like family, and we step up and take care of each other like family. And um, I'll continue doing that as long as I can.
0: Gabrielle, thank you so much for talking with us today. Let's say somebody is listening to this episode for the very first time and they know nothing
2: about sex work. Is there anything that you would want to say to them? Uh, Hire a sex worker. (laughs) They will teach you everything you need to know. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this space.
0: We're so glad that you were able to talk to us. This was such, a, such an informative episode, I think. Is there any social media or organization or anything that you would want our guests to go check out after hearing this
2: episode? Yeah, right now on, I want to say, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Decrim, Decrimpa, D-E-C-R-I-M-P-A, And my advocacy Twitter is advogabby, A-D-V-O-G-A-B-B-Y. And also some great places to check out would be Hips DC. I want to say they're at Hips DC, perhaps. And uh, Trans Uniting in Pittsburgh and the Love Diamond Project in Pittsburgh.
0: Perfect. Yeah. Please go check out those organizations. If anything that Gabrielle said resonated with you, obviously we're going to be donating ourselves to them to help out. Gabrielle, thank you so much for being on the show. You can find her episode on our website, candygirlpodcast.com, as well as all of our social media and everything else. And we will hear from you guys next Friday.